We're now live. Okay. Welcome to Internal Tools OK, a podcast about operations, software, and increasingly sports. <laughs> I'm Angus, and with me as always is my co-host Bryce. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, thanks for being here, Max. Thank you for having me. And our guest today is Max Wenneker. If you've ever wondered how Uber works, ask Max. He ran the Baltimore office, then ran operations for all of Latin America, and finally was in charge of jump bikes in the U.S. He is now a fractional COO, and you can find him at maxwenekerconsulting.com. Thanks for hopping on. Thanks for having me. And that uh, I don't know if I deserve credit for all the things you mentioned Uber-related, but uh, I'll, I'll certainly... Uh, I certainly know how it works at the very least. Yeah, you may not want to own all the, you know, the negative publicity too. <laughs> so keep keep the keep the appropriate distance. Um, okay, so just kind of a quick quick starter here. So you work with a lot of executives. You you think a lot about team communication, etc. So I'm looking at Reddit right now. It feels like they're having a company meltdown. It reminds me of a terrible commercial where you think to yourself, how did this ad get through nine layers of approval with the executive committee, et cetera? <laughs> like, how does a situation like this happen at a company like Reddit? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is actually not that uncommon. Uh, it's If you think about just like the steady state of any given company, it's pretty easy to throw it off, uh, particularly if you haven't built strong levels of trust between all the leaders and all the people doing the work, right? The employees like us. Uh, and so yeah. uh, one rumor starts to fly, one big layoff occurs that isn't perfectly communicated or perfectly handled. And it is a vicious cycle uh, where employees start to get worried Worse things now start to get thrown around as rumors. Some of those things might end up being true because leadership isn't maybe making the best decisions because they're in reaction mode. And so this is like inevitable at some point in with many companies who haven't built that strong foundation of communication and trust like you're talking about. Yeah, that makes sense. And that, and kind of, I want to get into like our first major question here and... Uh, I'll just start with, start with that and what you do. So you are a fractional COO. Can you just tell us what that is and, uh, yeah, what, what you like about it? What's, what's challenging about it? Sure. Now, it takes a few different forms. I guess I'll boil it down to, I don't have great ideas, but I'm really good at executing other people's ideas. So you take a founder who has built a company and it went from two people to 20 people over the course of one night or a few months or even a year. And suddenly founders are not just the idea person anymore. They're also having to manage a big team and get a bunch of people pointed in the same direction that that run often those leaders run into problems of coordination between teams, appropriate prioritization, all the normal things that a team experiences in a fast growing startup. I come in and I help basically figure those things out. So founders get to focus more on the long-term strategy and the vision, and I help get the team oriented towards getting those things done. And I think the the main yeah. selling point for a fractional COO versus you bring on a COO full-time is, one, I'm a lot cheaper than paying someone full-time, and two, 
I join and I leave very quickly. So you could interview me today and I could join literally tomorrow and ramp up very quickly. Uh, and my contracts are monthly. So a company who only needs me for a short period of time to sort of get the house in order before bringing on a full-time executive can do so. Yeah, you're, you're a mercenary. Exactly. <laughs> that is in ancient times what I would have been so, described as. <laughs> so, okay, I want to go back to this question of scaling. Obviously, you saw this at insane, I want to say scale at Uber, but it feels stupid to reuse that word again. <laughs> I think it's the but right you word. You saw this at Uber. I think it's I think it's Uber's really interesting because everyone everyone is familiar with it. Everyone has seen it. Very few people understand how it actually operates behind the scenes. Uh, I'm curious if you have an example of something that customers take for granted that is actually super difficult to pull off for the Uber team behind the scenes. Yeah. I guess at its most basic, having drivers in the right place at the right time did not just happen like that. They didn't just know where to go and happen to be there, particularly before the automation that now ex exists. This was really a very manual process of people like me when I was an entry-level op ops manager in Baltimore, literally doing an analysis every week and figuring out where were pockets of demand that weren't being met with supply that we might see again as patterns the following week. And then how do we message the right drivers to be there to fill that demand? And how do we incentivize them and to what extent to ensure that that actually happens as a very challenging and manual and operationally intensive process that happened literally every single day at Uber. Now there's a lot more automation behind it as we, you know, got big data and got data scientists and of course, AI engineers, but particularly in the early days, that was incredibly challenging. And then add to that something like an event like in Baltimore, you had the Orioles, they played basically every day or, you know, four or five days a week, there's a lot of demand right when an Orioles game ends, right? 30,000 people all leaving the stadium at once. How do you ensure that there are enough drivers to meet that demand that's happening at literally one moment? Yeah, that is a hard problem. <laughs> it was, it was you, very you challenging. Write, you, yeah. And I, I know you write a lot about organizational speed, communication, that sort of thing. And I think of companies as sort of being on, on two ends of the spectrum. And I think some people might be surprised to hear that, you know, early on this stuff wasn't automated at Uber. Um, but some companies are on one end where you've got, you know, it's, it's automate everything. And then other companies are on the other end where, you know, everything runs on a spreadsheet. There's no software engineering. It's all manual. Um, I doubt that either extreme is the right approach, but how do you think about, um, how do you think about finding that balance and iterating towards a solution that is good for the customer more quickly? One thing that I appreciated that Uber did, I thought exceptionally well, was they had the engineering team, the product teams build tools that enabled the operational hackers to move a lot faster. So it wasn't, let's perfectly automate 
every step of the driver onboarding process of uh, setting prices in which locations, of figuring out how il- how flexible or inflexible prices should be. It was let's build tools yeah. to allow other people to easily make those decisions and implement them, so that less expensive and more easily findable people, like operations managers, more entry level folks, you know, have maybe less of a specialized skill set. Uh, there are lower barriers to entry for that type of job. Uh, could take action in a way that didn't require engineering time. I've also worked at other companies who automated things in a way that required engineers to make changes every time the product needed to be adjusted. Whereas, for example, at Uber, if you wanted to create a new country that we would operate in, you could actually do that in our tools as an operations manager or as the GM of a market. You didn't actually need any engineering help. So the engineers invested a lot of time up front building these tools, but it saved them a ton of time later on because they were flexible and allowed. It's sort of like, do you make something a dropdown or do you just make it a text field, right? They just created a bunch of dropdowns essentially that allowed you within a certain bound to build markets, create new, new ride products, things like that without requiring ongoing engineering resources. So that, that to me is the ultimate hack is how do you have your engineering team build things that scale without requiring them to be part of it every single adjustment that is made? Yeah, I'm curious. So use the word operational hacker. I don't think that is that is part of the, the normal lexicon, the common vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um can you can you paint the picture of an operational hacker? Sure. So I'm guessing that you are one yourself. I like to think but... so. Uh, maybe maybe a few levels removed at this point, but that is at my basis what I am, which is a constant tinkerer and improver. So my background, just to give right. some context, before I joined Uber, I spent a couple of years at Capital One as a business analyst, which is sort of an internal consultant of sorts, doing uh, data modeling and understanding, you know, some of my. Some of my peers did like credit modeling. I did modeling of financial incentives for bank branch, financial advisors, things like that. I went over to Uber. So I have this very analytical background. And uh, Uber asked us to take that analytical background and apply it in real time to the operation of a market. So now instead of analyzing incentives for bank branch managers, I was analyzing the impact of incentives on drivers in real time on a Tuesday at 2 p.m. And then trying to figure out how to adjust those accordingly at 2 p.m. on that Tuesday. Uh, So operational hackers, what we did was we tried to figure out ways to improve those things. So first, maybe we do a one-time analysis to figure out how do we want to adjust these incentives. And then maybe the next step would be, let's take a step back and do an ongoing pattern analysis such that we have like a better baseline for incentives at all times going forward. And then let's figure out, if all of us are doing that in all the cities on the East Coast, could we have one person do that? How do we make that process scalable such that we save everyone else some time and we have the right tracking in place so everyone knows what's going on without having to be involved? So it's a constant process of iteration and trying to figure out how do operational processes scale? Yeah, it sort of reminds me, you know, at Chipotle, there's the one guy who's like a free safety who just makes sure that things move through the line yep. no matter what, and he'll pop to one station or another. Kind of feels like that almost, but 
you know, you're mixing in SQL and a little bit of data science. Yeah, I think and that's understanding of the that's business. Right. Yeah, it's, it, the way I like to think about it is long term, every single thing that an operations team does should be automated, right? If there's any repeated process that an operations team is running, over time, it makes sense to, to automate that, right? You can have it work better and you can have it work with fewer resources required. But then there's going to be that next thing that needs to be boxed up and put together in some well-analyzed, ongoing, documented fashion. That's the next thing that ops will be doing. Yeah. So ops is the, the spear tip of what ultimately will be automated over time. Yeah. So if I'm an engineer and I am the, the handle of the spear, proverbially, sure. what what does what does a great ops person do for me? How does a great ops person make my life easier? It's a little bit of a two-way street. So the the first is the inbound. So a good ops person and really a good product team that works closely with ops is saying, here are the most impactful problems that our company is experiencing. And you could define that by the external customer. There's some key metric that we think could be improved. Maybe that's revenue per customer, maybe that's, you know, time time on app per customer, you name it. Here's a key problem that we are experiencing is related to the external customer or maybe the internal customer. Every single person internally is having to do this thing manually. And if we just had this one, if we just solve this one problem, it wouldn't have to be done anymore and we'd save a lot of time. So that's the inbound is an ops and a product team that's really working well with the engineers is defining the set of problems that needs to be solved in the right order. And then the reverse is I, engineer, I as an engineer am building something, it needs to be tested and it needs to be rolled out. A good ops team is helping that engineering and product team test those things in the real world environment and make them better through feedback. And then they're also coming up with coherent, well thought out rollout plans that balance, of course, the need for speed with also the need to do it in a way that's customer centric and thoughtful. Yeah, I think the the ops person as the tester is. I'd be curious for your perspective on this, but I think that is wildly underappreciated. I think most people look at engineers and they say this is our most important. This is our most expensive resource. This is the most important. Yes, definitely the most finite resource. All the focus. Yeah. And it's like all the focus is on let's make the engineers' lives easier, et cetera. But the ops people can actually, what you're saying is the ops people can actually help the engineers. Yes. An ops person, a good ops team is is helping make each engineer significantly more effective with every hour of input that they give, right? A good ops team is saying, well, now this hour that you're working on as an engineer, is better informed and therefore you're working on things in the right way. And it's better informed in terms of priorities such that you're also working on the right things. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to ask basically this same question in a different way, which is that a lot of teams, they want to move faster. They want to grow to a bigger scale, whatever, they look at this problem and then they go and they hire a ton of people. What are people normally missing when they default to that strategy? I do think to some extent in an ops 
dependent company or an ops heavy company, adding more people in the short term can get more coverage on certain urgent problems. Like if I just add more customer support representatives, in theory, I'm going to be faster at responding to tickets, right? That that should play out reasonably well. I think the problem that isn't well thought through is what happens after that in the long term, right? If I just throw a bunch of bodies at a problem, suddenly, of course, my expenses are going way up. But also every single person who works in ops is a resource drain potentially on every other part of the organization if they're not well organized. So if there were three ops, this is a great example that we experienced at Uber. When there were only 20 ops people in the United States, we could literally all be in one chat room with all the engineers. We could ping them and say, hey, this thing isn't working anymore. Uh, payments are broken. Or the app literally isn't on in my market for whatever reason. Great. <laughs> now think about when there are 2,000 ops folks and they're global. You can't have one chat room where everyone talks through all the problems. Because there's going to be some bizarre thing going on with the product somewhere all the time. Either because it's actually not working or because the user doesn't understand it well enough to know that it's not a problem they've caused or it is a problem they've caused, suddenly that chat room is useless and you need all sorts of infrastructure to be able to uh, solicit problems, confirm they are problems, and then put them in an order of priority. So if you don't also think about how do we organize this function and how do we create the right infrastructure to support it, just hiring more people is going to be a tremendous drain on the rest of the organization. It's going to slow everyone down. Yeah, the way you describe it. So occasionally, Nassim Taleb tweets out something, and I might butcher the, the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of, I've never seen a shortage that's not followed by a glut. Yes. And it feels like the same sort of dynamic where you have all this urgent work. Okay, we need to throw bodies at it. Then we throw bodies at it. We get it organized. But then at some point, the process catches up and we've got all these bodies around. We don't know how to organize them. And it actually just creates more work in figuring out how to communicate. You know, how to it's also not necessarily obvious that this is a problem at first. It's not like you hire a bunch of people and they all start tomorrow, right? They, they right. join over time and they only learn enough to be dangerous to the rest of the organization over time, right? So it's not like this problem suddenly hits you in the face and you're like, oh man, what do I do about it? This problem slowly builds over time to the point where there's a lot of inertia towards a really problematic structure, and it then takes a lot of time to unwind it. So yes, as automation catches up, sure, you have extra resources, but I think the bigger problem is you suddenly, sorry, not suddenly, you over time build more and more resources that weigh down the rest of the company, and it's not obvious that that's happened until it's way too late, and it takes resources to undo that. Yeah. Okay. So you are a company doctor and that's a good description. I'm going to use companies, that. Companies, <laughs> companies are responding to these late stage symptoms that they have. You know, it's, I don't know. I have diabetes. <laughs> Corporate and diabetes. Sure. I think what, <laughs> exactly. And I think what you're saying is that 
and I think you could even get further into, you know, specific symptoms of diabetes. But what you're saying is, you know, sort of underneath that all, there's the there's the root cause of whatever this is, whether it's like, you know, in a person's case, lifestyle factors, diet, whatever. So how do companies how do companies identify you know, sort of like the fundamental things that actually matter as opposed to just waiting around until, you know, they see that, oh my God, I need to have my leg amputated. That's a, like, do you have certain, are there certain KPIs or KPIs might even be too narrow-minded, just like a way of thinking that, you know, that you would use to assess a company, you know, if you came in on day one? Yeah. Um, did a checkup? So in this case, it very much applies the same way as it does in medicine. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Normally, when I join an organization, all these things are already problems. It's the reason that a company has asked me to work with them, right? They're not like, everything's going great. We're just ready to scale. Like, let's bring in someone who can help diagnose our problems and and prepare us for scale. It's more, we've gotten out over our skis and have built up a lot of organizations organizational debt, either operational or technical, and now we need some help unwinding it. The symptoms that I normally see are there is a lot of communication about projects, but very little forward motion on projects. So this is a classic example where a company's gotten so big that you have a lot of people who need to give input on any one thing that's being done. So maybe I before is the only operations employee, you know, there were like five other people in the whole company to talk to before I implemented something. Great. I'll go talk to them literally in the next hour because they all sit next to me or I can ping them. There's only five total people on Slack. So we're all paying attention, right? Now we're 10 times the size. I'm not the only operations person. I'm working on something a lot more specialized now. Everyone else is working on things that are a lot more specialized. I don't know what everyone else is working on, so I can't plan as effectively. I communicate out to, I now have to communicate out to a lot more people that I'm working on something. And one of two things happens. Either I don't do that and I move forward and I break a bunch of things that I didn't know would be broken in other teams. Or I try to involve these other teams and I end up getting pushback every single time. So what you inevitably see and this is literally every single client I've ever had and every single company I've ever worked for has had this problem. Either you have a team that is bull in a china shop moving forward with their objectives and their projects, and it's just wreaking havoc on the rest of the organization. They're changing processes that are impacting other or other parts of the team. And they're like, why did this thing change? You didn't tell me it was changing. Or they are trying to get input from every single team and literally none of their initiatives are moving forward. So that to me is like the number one symptom of you have an organizational operational problem that you need to solve is things are suddenly moving really slowly and they weren't before, or they're still moving quickly, but everything's getting broken because of it. Yeah. And then is this, is this problem? So once you come in and identify this, is this, like an infectious disease where it's easy to pinpoint and you say, Hey, we just need a vaccine for this. Or is it more like a systemic health issue like diabetes where there might be a variety of factors and you have to drill down and sort of use some judgment. It's a little bit more. There's, there's definitely no um, single fix 
and no single person or team has caused this problem. Uh, oftentimes when you get to this point, you, you get a lot of blame game where every team says every other team is, you know, yeah. the problem, you know, they're not checking with me or they're not listening to me or uh, they're not letting me roll this thing out. Right. Uh, at the end of the day, it's systemic. And there are a bunch of things. I think the, the, the key things that I try to do with the company are one, help them understand that this is very normal and is not because someone's doing something wrong. And then two, uh, basically create new habits as related to project work and big initiatives, which is one, let's have everyone focus on a lot fewer things. If everyone's focused on the same number of things today as they were when the company was one-tenth the size, you have literally 10 times the number of things going on, and that is problematic. You just, as a company, can only focus on a certain number of things and do them well. So the first thing is, what yeah. really needs to get done and what are nice to haves or actually not necessary, not necessary at all. So great. We've now reduced our focus. So we're all more or less rowing in the same direction. The second is a lot more prevention type communication, which is, Hey, I'm planning to do this thing. It is solving X, Y, and Z problem. I am gathering input now to make sure that I am considerate of the potential impact on these other parts of the organization that I either know about or more importantly that I don't know about. So I'm soliciting feedback now to help make sure the project goes well rather than later once people are already upset and the wheels have already kind of come off because I've rolled it out or because I'm getting stopped at the finish line by all these other teams. Uh, and then let's figure out how do we get ongoing communication about these things and ongoing alignment about these things and have the senior leaders make decisions rather than individuals lower in the organization kind of tell each other, no, you can't do this because it's going to impact my thing. Yeah. So obviously this, this is encompassing everything from organizational structure down to you know, the way people that the way people run their process in a spreadsheet, totally like that. Specifically within internal tools and internal facing software, are there certain things that you see that companies do well or don't do well? You know, like certain things that you guys did well at Uber that other companies could could benefit from, whether it's either a process or just a mindset or a specific type of tool that was built? I think it particularly in the early days, Uber did a really good job of deciding what stayed decentralized and what would be centralized. So uh, things that were centralized, budgets. So for example, the amount of incentives that we would want to spend in a market for riders or drivers in a given week or month or quarter. Uh, other things that were decided centrally, headcount. You know, that makes it, that re like makes relative sense and individual manager is always going to want to add more people and it's often not decided in the context of what else is going on. Uh, things that were decentralized though, the management of driver onboarding of rider promotions. This made a lot of sense when you had these brand new markets that required a lot of local knowledge in order to operate in. So my market looked very different in the early days than the Miami market in terms of who the driver was, who the rider was, what the demand and supply patterns were. And so that local information was really important. We needed to be able to make decisions locally. 
there were also local regulations that we had to follow in terms of what did we, you know, what what are the requirements for a vehicle registration in Maryland versus Texas? They're different. There's no central documentation that says that. There's no product that is built to support that. So we need to be able to make local decisions. And so um, no company should be fully centralized. This is my theory. No company should be fully centralized or fully decentralized. Many companies are not optimized in terms of what is centrally decided and what is delegated to the local market or individual team to make decisions on. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, I actually want to do one more. Sure. Sorry, I lied. <laughs> uh, so I think you've got this very interesting contrast between having worked at Uber and then having worked at Incredible Health. And so, you know, operations is this this very big umbrella that I'm not even sure how to define it. I just think of it as doing things that, that you know, make the company Yeah, it's run. the day-to-day running but of the Uber, company. I think were, that's right. Yeah, and it's like, but it could take a lot of forms. You were managing, right, right. And uh, and anyway, at Uber, you you were managing ops teams that consisted of, you know, people coming out of top tier business schools. And then at Incredible Health, you were managing ops teams that consisted of ex nurses. Yeah. I'm curious, did that require an adjustment from you? And, you know, what, what was just different about those, those two? Yeah, that was actually a a fascinating experience for me and one I'm really thankful for. Um, Two main things that I discovered uh, transitioning to managing a team of almost exclusively registered nurses. Uh, One, there were a lot of things I took for granted in the corporate world that were not necessarily familiar to every single person I was going to manage at Incredible Health. The example I often like to give is this concept of one-on-ones. I am very used to having one-on-ones literally from the first day of my first job out of college. I'd have something like a weekly one-on-one with my manager. It didn't matter who my manager was. It didn't matter what company I was at. That was the thing. Nurses don't have one-on-ones with their managers on a weekly basis. They don't even really have managers in the hospital setting in the same way that we do in the corporate world. And so I would schedule these one-on-ones and I'm very used to just asking a couple of questions and it's sort of really sparking conversation on the part of my direct report. And a lot of my team would have literally nothing to say. And I realized at some point that they're just not familiar with one-on-ones at all. And I had to really go back to basics and both explain to the team why I thought they were important, adjust them for the uh, format that the team of nurses would be more amenable to and train the managers on how to conduct them because they were also coming from the nursing world and of course had no experience with this. So that was that was one sort of very big change in my experience was just broadening my perspective of what normal looked like in a corporate setting. The other thing is I suddenly had a significantly greater diversity of thought in my team than I'd ever had at Uber. This is definitely not a knock on Uber at all. It's full of very smart people. But when I got to Incredible Health, I suddenly was working with people who came from a much greater variety of backgrounds, of upbringings, regions of the world and country they were from, uh, the 
education they had, what they majored in, what their training was than I'd ever worked with before. Yeah. And suddenly we had all kinds, it was then on me to harness the power of those different backgrounds to make really, come up with really good ideas and tumble them and shine them into something really amazing. But once I got to, once I figured out how to harness that power, the uh, variety of experience that the team brought to the table was tremendously impactful and something I uh, wasn't used to before that in a good way. That was a really good experience as a manager. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Maybe more people should seek out nurses. For Certainly the, the team of about 60 nurses that were part of my organization were tremendously talented uh, very able to adjust on the fly to changing circumstances. Uh, but I loved working with them. I think the, the lesson for me was not just how awesome it was to work with nurses, but more broadly that uh, the typical background that startups seek is not necessarily all encompassing of where the best talent lies. And there's tremendous opportunity yeah. to seek out talent that maybe other companies are overlooking because of what they typically look for. That can be a tremendous comparative sorry, competitive advantage for a company. Yeah, there's an anecdote in The Dream Machine, which is a book about the history of the internet. Mm. And I think it's, I can't remember if it's from World War II or early Cold War. I think it's early Cold War, like 1950s, um, that the government needed to hire, let's say, let's call it, 3,000 programmers, and there was no such thing as a programmer or a programmer at the right. market. I guess and there weren't really computers. They went through a few different iterations of it. Exactly. And then what they what they ended up stumbling upon was that female music teachers were their best fit and their best... They picked up the material the quickest. They were the most accessible. Oh, fascinating. And they just, they just went in that direction. Yeah. So the first sort of big cohort of... Uh, you know, software engineers did not look like the sort of tech bro. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a, it's a good reminder that it's, it's between soft skills and hard skills. It's a lot easier to teach hard skills, right? This is just, you need to know this information in order to do this thing, but it's really hard to teach someone how to think. And when you get people who come from different backgrounds, you get different ways of thinking, regardless of how they've been applied, that that different way of thinking when you just when you just consider what is the mental approach i want someone to take to problem solving you realize that where that person can come from is actually a lot uh, greater variety of backgrounds than you previously thought yeah okay i'll kick it over to bryce uh, yeah, so we normally do a little like quick hitter section just as a quick little palate cleanser. So I'm just going to throw out some like cities topics and stuff like that. And you just give like over underrated okay. <laughs> and a uh, little 30 second commentary. All right. Pretty big from uh, <laughs> operational strategy. <laughs> uh, but what do you think about Washington, D.C.? Over underrated? Uh, underrated or maybe appropriately rated. I think people generally love living there. I certainly loved living there for for five years and uh it's a relatively clean city. It's relatively easy to get around. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the traffic's pretty bad, but that is true of literally every city I've ever lived in. Uh, 
I, I loved living there and I could not recommend it enough except for like, there's like this six to eight week period between July and early September that is brutally hot and humid. So it may make sense to seek cooler pastures at that point. Otherwise underrated. Huh? Yeah. Uh, I'm from like the Northeast area too. So like, I guess it gets similarly hot up that here, is true. but I'm about to head down to Austin, which oh, that's seems another a little bit worse. Yeah. That's literally a greenhouse <laughs> at this point. Yeah, we're getting uh, one of five. Yeah. Uh, how about uh, San Diego? So I currently live in San Diego. I'm okay. obviously a little bit biased. Uh, I adore this city. I'm, I'll say I'm biased in the sense that I'm from Boston and think Boston is the greatest place on earth. But if we exclude that, San Diego is probably a close second. Uh, maybe, you know, other than the retirement communities of Asheville, North Carolina and Medellin, Colombia, which I would happily end up in. To live in for the rest of my life, San Diego is an awesome spot. I don't know if it's underrated. Like no one you meet is says San Diego sucks, but it's definitely deserving of all of its hype and then some. Yeah, I guess like it more so works in like comparison to like the next two I was going to bring up, which is just San Fran and L.A. Like I feel like oftentimes you always hear like San Fran and L.A. is like the top California cities. So like, what would be your ranking of this? I don't think there's a comparison, at least for me. And I will readily admit that how I think about where I want to live is different than how everyone else. So I'm, I'm not telling anyone who thinks San Francisco or LA is great that it's, that they're not great. They're not great for me. I put San Diego in a, in a class well above San Francisco and LA. Uh, and I certainly would prefer to live here eight days out of seven. All right. Uh, I think I know the answer to the next one for over or under underrated, but, uh, Boston. Well, there, I mean, Boston like is on its own rating scale, right? It's a bajillion out of 10. Uh, Boston has amazing history, exceptional sports. Uh, the Duncan franchise was started there. Uh, I'm from there, which obviously is a big plus, but I, uh, I, Maybe everyone's biased towards their hometown, but I I simply love Boston. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I like that's really on my list to visit because like I'm from 40 minutes outside of the Philly area, so like hear a lot of great things about it, and it's not that that's far true. away. But somehow I've not. Made well, it you know, June yet. through September is the ideal time to visit New England, unless you're a unless you're a leaf peeper, in which case later in the fall is when you visit New England. Bryce is a big peeper. <laughs> I will not ask further questions. Leave um, <laughs> peeper. Mm. Uh, yeah, moving on. <laughs> so <laughs> the next one, I think I'm going to do like another comparison. What do you, how would you rank the two Top Gun movies? Is Top Gun or Top Gun Maverick better? I, so I, I love both movies. I will say that the original Top Gun did not age super well in a number of ways. Uh, it's very clearly uh, filmed and written from the male gaze perspective. However, uh, you know, I, I definitely really loved it when I first watched it. I think Top Gun Maverick is about as exceptional a sequel as one could write other than maybe, you know, Godfather's parts two and godfather parts two and three it holds up incredibly well uh they're very different movies but i I love them both for their own reasons i wouldn't pick one over the other although i'll i'll admit i do miss goose that's all good all good um 
Okay, is there anything you want to plug here at the end? Um, I'll just say, I, you know, I want to, do you want to sound? Yeah, I, I uh, love working with early stage startups. Most of my clients are between seed stage and series B, kind of five to 200 employee range. Uh, if you're ever interested in getting a little bit of a diagnostic on your company and seeing what it might be like to work together, I, I offer uh, one month, not free trials, but one month paid trials for any company that's interested in working together. And then we determine if we want to continue, continue working together. But at the very least, you get a, good diagnostic on what the challenges that you might be facing now or might face later are and some tools as to how to solve those as a leader. I'd be happy to chat. Awesome. Well, Max, thanks for hopping on. This was super interesting as expected. And um, I hope the listeners Enjoy as much yeah, as thank did. you. Uh, thank you both for having me on. I uh, I enjoyed the both the deep dive into ops and the rapid fire questions about uh, which Top Gun movie was better. So appreciate you having me on.